Hello and welcome to the latest Q&A in the Fulham Focus series. My name's Daniel Smith, better known as Danny Boy, and recently I was joined by a fellow supporter and former matchday announcer, the wonderful legendary voice of Fulham himself, Mr Diddy David Hamilton. We are going to pick up now with David explaining how he got into the industry back in the day. Really hope you enjoy it. Right, so we'll start a little bit on your career away from Fulham. How did you get into the industry in the first place? Well, it's funny um, how I got into it. I got into it with a slightly uh, circuitous route. When I was at school, I was a big um, football fan. I loved football. And um, I wrote a column for a magazine called Soccer Star. I worked for them for about two years. And then when I left school, I went for a job there as a, you know, on the staff. They didn't realize I was a schoolboy. They thought from the way that I wrote that I was probably about 40. I think they got a bit of a shock. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't get the job. Uh, but I did get a job uh, as a scriptwriter at ATV. And uh, I, it was then one of the early ITV companies. And um, everything was going really well. I got my call-up papers for national service. And I got posted out to Germany. And uh, to stop it being a complete waste of time, I went to see the uh, local radio station, which is the Brit- British Forces radio station in Cologne. And I said to them, look, um, could you could you use me as a writer? They said, well, we don't actually have writers, but we do need someone to read the football results. So that was the first thing that I did. First, I was 19. And um, then I said to them, uh, you ought to have a rock and roll show because all the music that they were playing was fine for the officers, but the troops wanted rock and roll. I don't think they actually really knew what rock and roll was. So anyway, um, it was a very exciting time because Elvis Presley was in Germany at the same time doing his national service. I think he was in Frankfurt and I was in Cologne. So I was playing his records and I was playing Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and stuff like that. So when I came back to England, I went back to my script writing job, but I I got the bug for broadcasting. And um, it was quite difficult to get into radio at that time, but there wasn't a lot of radio and there weren't many record shows. But I did get a job as a television announcer and I went up to Manchester and I was living there in the 60s and then when I moved down to London I joined Thames TV and uh, in 1973 I got my own daily show on Radio 1 so I re- I, that was a very happy time I was comparing Top of the Pops um, I was doing a daily afternoon show on Radio 1 that, then they had a, an economy move at the BBC and they act the uh, afternoon show on Radio 2, so for several years my program was on Radio 1 and Radio 2, which you know gave it a tremendous audience. So I still do radio now and uh, do bits of telly from time to time. So uh, yeah, that was uh, how the thing came about at Fulham was that somebody said to me, and um, I'm trying to remember the year now, I think it was something like 1996, so that's, what is that, uh, over over 20 years ago? Yeah, it would be about that, I think. Somebody said to me, would you do the halftime entertainment at Fulham? So I said, yeah. So I went on the pitch at halftime and, you know, did whatever we did. We used to have a big drum in those days, and we had the uh, Fulham Flutter, it was called. And I, I, we'd get a, a, a player or an ex-player to come on the pitch and, and draw out somebody's uh, ticket. It made quite a lot of money, I think, for the club. A lot of people used to like to do the Fulham Flutter. I don't know why they ended it, really. It was it was good fun. I suppose it just sort of became a bit dated. Anyway, um, the first season I did that, we were promoted under Mickey Adams. 
So um, anyway, the next season they said to me, would you like to do the announcing as well? So originally the announcer's position was in a, a corner of the balcony of the cottage. And it was a terrible view because the, the other goal was so far away, you could hardly see who, who scored the goals. So it was quite difficult then having to come down from the cottage onto the pitch at half time. So then they decided they would move the announcer to one of the dugouts on, on the opposite side. Uh, and uh, then the next season they said to me, oh, w would you like to host one of the lounges with George Cohen after the match? He's still there in, in the lounge, and I, I continued actually doing the lounge with him. They weren't paying me anymore, but I, I did it for quite a long time after after I gave up the announcing because he, he just liked me to do it with him. You know, he didn't, he didn't particularly enjoy doing it on his own. And it was always a pleasure to, to speak to him because his reading of the game was obviously, you know, just fantastic. So he was working alongside a, a World Cup legend. It don't get much better than that, does it? You know, having a Fulham player played every minute of every game, the only time England have ever won the World Cup, just, you, you can't get prouder of a player than that, can you? Well, we're very lucky to, to have uh, George, and uh, what's been great this last season, and David Daly uh, has a lot to do with this, is bringing back some of the old players and, and getting them out on the pitch at half-time. When they walk up to the director's box afterwards, my seat's not too far away from them. I always go over and say hello to them. And it's great to see people again like Les Barrett and uh, Boa Morty was, was up there recently. He was a, he was a great character. And uh, Les Barrett, what a fantastic winger he was. And he was absolutely brilliant in the uh, run-up to the cup final. We had such a good team that year. You know, and... Um, when we went to Wembley, I was on the afternoon show at Radio 1. This is before Wembley, actually. This was, this was the semi-final at, at Man City. And um, I was on the afternoon show at Radio 1. I didn't finish until 5 o'clock. And the kickoff in Manchester was at 7.30. So we thought, how on earth are we going to get there? We couldn't get there by car, that was for sure. We couldn't get there by train. And you, you couldn't get a flight either. So what we did was we... We um, hired a private plane. We got, we got a Piper Aztec from Northolt. So I left Broadcasting House at 5 o'clock. Uh, we got in the car. We raced over to Northolt, and we flew up to Manchester. A friend of mine who was a director at Man City at the time picked us up in his car, got us to the ground, and we were actually in the ground in time for the kickoff. That is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> That's he such a film story. You know, with John Mitchell's goal, hit his knee and went into the net right at the end. We were all on the pitch. We all spilled out onto the pitch. And uh, we flew back in the Piper Aztec and we got some champagne. So obviously we were convinced that we were going to win. And we'd, we were drinking the champagne on the way back on the plane and wearing the sick bags on our heads as hats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant that is such a Fulham story only a Fulham fan would hire a private plane to travel to a football match brilliant we were that uh, fanatical I suppose at that time and of course we had followed Fulham through the rounds we'd been up we'd already been up to Car Carlisle I think we had we took a plane I think up to Carlisle that was a long haul and um, we'd been to Hillsborough for the first semi-final uh, and we'd seen all the rounds. And, you know, the incredible thing about 75 was that Fulham won every game away from home. And we took more games to get to Wembley than any other club in the history of the Cup. There's another stat for you, Danny. Hey, Absolutely. 
Somebody sent me uh, an email, which I'll, I'll read you now, because it's, it's quite funny. And uh, I think it sums it, it all up. It, it, this is what he said. He said, a friend of mine has two tickets for the championship playoff final at Wembley. They're box seats and include a three-course lunch and drinks throughout the day. He didn't realize when he bought them, it's the same day as his wedding, so he can't go. If you're interested and want to go instead of him, it's at St. Clement's Church, Fulham Palace Road. Her name is Helen, and she'll be wearing a white dress. <laughs> good? Yeah, that man made the right decision, 100%. <laughs> well, I, I think it kind of summed up the spirit of uh, what an important day it was. Oh, 100%. Well, I mean, we've skipped quite a lot because we haven't actually asked how you became a Fulham supporter. Right, OK. Well, my mother lived in a flat next door to Putney Bridge Station, Randler Gardens Mansions. And um, I used to hear all the football supporters going by, you know, match days. And eventually uh, my stepfather took me to uh, my first match at Fulham. We were standing behind the goal, as you could then, in the Putney end. And uh, I think you could actually walk round the other end if you wanted to. Uh, and the, there was no stand on the riverside. There were just flags there. It, it was open to the river. It was very cold. The wind, you imagine what it was like. The wind whipped in off the river. Uh, so we had to have a cup of bovril at halftime to keep us warm. So I think my first game there would have been in the late 40s, probably something like about 1948. So that is now 70 years ago. Um, and then, obviously, you know, I continued to uh, support Fulham. And in the 70s, I, was a, I became a director of the club. Shortly after the cup final, maybe a year or maybe two years afterwards, there was another director whose name was, um, just trying to remember his name now, uh, it'll come to me. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but he was another director. He was a very, very wealthy businessman. Um, and he was concerned that the board was, uh, Ernie Clay was the chairman who was from Huddersfield. He was very concerned that the board were business people, not necessarily uh, Fulham supporters, and people who might have an interest perhaps in developing the ground, you know, moving, moving the club somewhere else and, and building flats on it. So he was very concerned about that, and he wanted to get another Fulham supporter on the board. So I didn't have a lot of money. At the time, I'd just been through quite an expensive divorce. And I said, well, I'm not in a position to give the club any money. So uh, Ernie Clay said, well, don't worry about that. He said, you, you could do some uh, discos and, you know, f in the club and raise money for us, which I did. And uh, he said, you can put on some pop shows, pop concerts. That didn't actually happen, but uh, I would have done. So I was a director for a couple of years. Ed Edward Burston, that was his name, Edward Burston. He was, a, he was a lovely man. Sadly, he died very young. He died in his 40s. He was an absolute Fulham nut. And I used to go to his flat just around the corner from Hyde Park. And I remember he had a Japanese girlfriend. But I would go up there, and, and um, every time I went up there, he'd give me a Fulham shirt. I had so many shirts, I had enough for a team. But we were not happy with Ernie Clay. And we didn't trust him, basically. And the closer I got to the running of the club, the more I, I could see that he was not trustworthy. And um, we, it was the time that George Best was there, Rodney Marsh was there, so there were some great times. There was the famous match where uh, George Best and Rodney Marsh tackled each other, although they were on the same team. Yes. Uh, it was like a show business, really. It was more kind of showbiz than football. 
But people went along because they wanted to see George and they wanted to see Rodney, and we had a team of uh, uh, characters. But there was an FA inquiry into the running of the club, and Edward and I said to Ernie Clay, can we see the books? So he said, no, you can't. So we said, well, we're directors of the club. We, we must be able to see the books. He said, no, you can't. So I was very concerned. I was working for the BBC at the time, and I thought, there's any scandal here. I could do without that. So I resigned. And so sadly, after about a couple of years, that, that came to an end. But I saw so much of the running of the club at that time. I thought the less you know about it, the better it is. It's better just to be a supporter. Anyway, I carried on being a supporter. And uh, so what was it after about 20 years after that, I suppose, that I think it was maybe Jimmy Hill who first asked me to go on the pitch and do the announcing at half time. When I did that, I did that for 18 years. And in that time, we had, in the time that I was doing, we had three promotions. We had the European final in Hamburg. We had our longest ever run in the top division. And uh, we had Mohamed Al-Fayed was the most wonderful chairman. He was everything that Ernie Clay wasn't. He, he gave the club probably about £200 million. Pounds. Um, he was wonderful to me because, as you know, Somebody sacked me, and uh, he gave me my job back. And I had a very, very funny dialogue with him because I was doing a radio show on the Monday um, after, uh, I know what it was, the first match of the season. It was the first match back at Craven Cottage after we'd been at Queen's Park Rangers. And they got a new guy to do the announcing. And um, everything went wrong. The chairman's suit was sprayed by the... Uh, sprinklers. I mean, that wasn't the announcer's fault. But then the chairman had, had got some dancers called the, the Cravenettes. He'd seen the dancers at West Ham and uh, uh, he wanted uh, these girls to dance at half time. So they had the Cravenettes. Anyway, Lily Allen's father, he was he was quite friendly with the chairman. He, he got some people called the Gavenettes and they were blokes in tights who ran onto the pitch, went up to the chairman and sort of flirted with him. And I think one of them tried to kiss him. It was a total embarrassment, and the chairman was extremely angry. So on the Monday, I got a call from Mark Collins, one of the directors, saying, Chairman would like to see you in his office. Can you come up to Harrods this afternoon? So I said, well, I'm on the air now, but I could come up later. So we arranged the time for 3 o'clock. So I met Mark in the Harrods estate office across the road, and we went up to the boardroom, and we sat there, and we waited, and the chairman walked in, with a bottle of whiskey in one hand and a file of Viagra pills in the other. So he put them down on the, on the table and he said, These are, this is what you need. So I said, oh, right, okay. So he said, now, what's happened to you? So I said, well, I, I've been sacked. So he said, yes, he said, and I want you back. So I said, oh, great. He said, and the person who did this, I will sack them. So I said, oh, right. Obviously, he didn't know anything about it. So uh, he said to me, how much are we paying you? So I told him. So he said, right, we're, no, we're not. We're going to give you. And he gave me a you know, fairly considerable rise. And he gave me some cash. So, and he walked out of the office. So I said to Mark Collins, where's he gone? So he said, I think he's gone to get some more money. So I said, oh, right, okay. So anyway, <laughs> when he came back, he had another wad of cash. And I said to him, it was not long after the cash for questions thing with um, Neil Hamilton, you know, the... Uh, politician. So I, I, I thought of this line while he was up, and I said to him, I don't think I should take cash from you, 
with a name like Hamilton. <laughs> so he, he laughed and he said, bloody Hamilton. He said, why am I employing somebody called Hamilton? I said, well, you're not. So he said, well, I am now. And um, anyway, I had to go back to people who had fired me and tell them. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm back tomorrow. And, uh, and that was it. But anyway, that was the beginning of a great jokey rapport that I had with him. I used to introduce him on the pitch, as you know, and he'd come out waving his scarf. Uh, he's probably the only club chairman who did that. It was a real bit of show business, but he loved it, and the crowd loved him. And always, always, he would come over and have a chat with me. And the things that he said, I mean, he's a very basic sense of humor. I had to hide the microphone behind my back, because if they'd gone out to the crowd, um, I can't imagine the reaction there would be. But the jokey rapport that I had with him was hilarious. And none of that would have happened if I hadn't been sacked. So after that, he looked after me. I remember he said to me one day, he said, I'll get you to see my doctor. So I said, well, do I look ill? So he said, no, but he said, that, you know, we'll, we'll look after you, we'll look after you. And I thought, well, you know, what a nice thing to say. I, I didn't go and see his doctor, but I thought, you know, that was his way of saying, we'll take care of you. He was a special man. I can see his generosity. I've spoken to several people that have nothing but good things to say about him. But um, how did it feel getting the sack? I was extremely upset because uh, I'd been at Queen's Park Rangers for two years, which was very difficult. I mean, you remember that time. It was like being a, an uninvited guest at somebody else's party. I mean, that ground-sharing thing never worked. And in contrast to our ground, with its wonderful character, the location, the river, and all of that, Going to Queen's Park Rangers was, was awful. So I'd been through the two years of that. I compared the end-of-season dinner, which I did every year with the management and the players and so on. And then uh, a couple of days later, I got this message saying that we won't be requiring your services any longer. Um, to this day, nobody has explained why. I think it was just a nasty piece of work done by somebody who, for whatever reasons uh, best known to themselves, I think there was more than one person behind it. I think there was a ringleader put the, the bullets in the gun and then got someone else to fire it. I think that's what happened. And most, if not all, of the people behind it are no longer at the club. Well, good. We don't need people like that. As I explained to you at the beginning, I said to you a couple of days ago when I spoke to you, my first clear memories of when I was going regularly to Fulham was the Mickey Adams promotion season. And yeah. that's the first season you became the voice of Fulham. So my whole life, pretty much, has been associated with you. And whenever I hear your voice, it, it takes me home. They should ta change the Take Me Home song to Take Me Home, Diddy Hamilton. <laughs> because it, whenever I hear your voice, I just think the cottage. Well, you have to remember, Danny, that I did it for a long time. So 18 years, you know, that's a long time. But uh, I thought Ivan did a terrific job at Wembley. And, he did. Um, I'm, very, I'm very pleased for him. Uh, that he's going to get the chance to do the announcing in the Premier League like I did. I think he's done extremely well. But Absolutely. But, um, yeah, and I, I know you had a say in Ivan getting the job. Well, Ivan was doing the presenting, so that they, they brought him in to do the presenting, and I thought he was doing it very well. And I just thought it was absolutely the natural thing that uh, he would take over. So he, he did with my blessing. The club very kindly gave me two season tickets, which I use now. And, um, you see, I mean, I, it, it got to a point where, you know, we're, we're all getting older, and I got to the point where I was sort of fairly well into my 70s. And I, 
doubt very much if there was anybody of my age who was doing that job anywhere else. And I thought it was just the, I wasn't retiring from radio or anything like that, but I thought it was just the natural time. In a way, Mohammed Al-Fayed's leaving probably had something to do with it as well. Like he did say to me at one point, uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, because we had further conversations. I had said to him about a year before, or I'd said to Mark Collins about a year before I, I gave up the job, that I was I was thinking of finishing. And he said, I think the chairman will want, want to speak to you. So um, before one of the matches, I was called up to his, his wonderful suite in the Riverside stand. And he said, what's all this about you retiring? So I said, well, you know, I think maybe you'd like to have somebody younger do it. So he said, um, well, he said, I, I could still do it. You can still do it. And we had another very jokey repartee. And it finished with him giving me another rise. Every time I saw him, he'd give me a rise. You know? <laughs> uh, so he looked after me incredibly well. And his last words were, he said, as long as I'm at this club, you're at this club. He said, oh, that, okay, well, that's great. I said, I, I love working for you. I said, every time I see you, give me a rise. We laughed. And, um, and that was it. So I went back and I said to the people I was working with, I said, the chairman said, I've got to stay, so I've got to stay. And then when he left, it was really, for me, the end of an era. I could see that things were changing. Obviously, I was very, very disappointed when we were relegated. I mean, I felt at that, that time that we threw it away. We had done so much good work to get into the Premier League, and then we just we let it go so lightly, you know. So, really, with Al Fayed, I think that was the time to go. And yes, uh, you know, Ivan had my absolute 100% blessing to take over the, the job. I think also another thing was, uh, Danny, that uh, in the early days, you know, a lot of it became very scripted and very corporate, but in the early days, you could have a lot of fun. And I remember when Simon Morgan came on as a substitute, it was his um, testimonial season. And I think he'd hardly played at all. He'd, he'd had a few injuries. And he came on, as you'll remember, as a sub in a, for about the last 15 minutes. And I think the only thing, only time he touched the ball, I think he took a throw in. Anyway, we used to have a man of the match in those days, and it was always chosen by the sponsors who always got it wrong every week. I would say the man of the matches. And I'd say to my colleagues, I can't read this out. This is a joke. They said, well, you know, the sponsors, well, that's who they want. I'd read it out. The crowd would groan as much as to say, oh, no, you know, who's, who's chosen that? Anyway, this particular match, uh, I said, and the man of the match is Simon Morgan, and everybody loved it. Yeah, we certainly did. I mean, and it was it was good that Morgan got that send-off, because, you know, after everything he did for the club, you know, he certainly deserved it. Uh, right, I've got a, a few questions now for you about your favourite things. So, when you was the match day compare, what was your favourite match? Well, I think it was the Juventus game. The atmosphere was just electric. I mean, when you look at it, we had to score four goals, didn't we? And uh, when they scored the first goal, you thought, well, that's it, it's all over. But when Clint Dempsey got the winner, the place erupted. I'd never known an atmosphere like it. And you see, I remembered back to the days when we were playing Hayes in the FA Cup and we got beaten by Hayes. And my pal Alex and I walked out of the ground and there had been about two or 3,000 people there we were so dejected. It was an awful night. And I remembered all those times, and I stood there with literally a lump in my throat, tears in my eyes, because I didn't think you would ever, ever have an atmosphere like that at Creighton Cottage. I thought that was just the most fantastic night. 
And I've got a feeling that that night the microphone packed up. We always had problems with the microphone in the early days, particularly. It used to come and go, and you know we were battling the odds with it. But uh, there was one night though. It might have been that, or it might have been the game before. There was certainly one match. Uh, and the microphone packed up completely, and I wasn't able to announce the uh, the goal scorer. There we are. I it, it wasn't sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it went it went wrong a few times, didn't it? I remember when um, Andy Johnson scored, but he was disallowed, and you shouted out, "Oh, sorry, wishful thinking." That's right. I tell you what happened with that one. Um, Andy Johnson liked to be called Andrew. He scored the goal. And I couldn't see the linesman. It was always difficult from the dugout to see goal scorers and things like that because I was down at, at the bottom of the slope and then up on the slope were the coaches. And sometimes with the awaiting, there'd be two or three of them. There would have been the manager and the assistant manager. And, the, uh, and you were ducking left and right to see who scored the goals. And sometimes I would actually have to go to the bench and ask them to confirm it. And that was fine, except at Fulham, uh, if you ask Bobby Zamora, he would always give me the wrong person. You know, if... if, uh, <laughs> if on purpose? If, yeah, on purpose. I learned not to trust him. Everybody <laughs> else would say, oh, it was so-and-so. But one particular match, I said, was that Aaron Hughes, was it? And uh, Bobby said, no, no, it's Angolan, Angolan. So I looked at him, and I, I looked at him. He had a bit of a, a glint in his eye, and I thought, I don't trust that. So I asked, asked somebody else, and they said, yeah, it was, it was Aaron Hughes. It was very entertaining in the dugout. I mean, you heard a lot of the industrial language and a lot of the um, spats that went on between rival coaches. It, it nearly came to blows a few times. There was a wonderful one with Ray Wilkins, who was quite a character, and he, he said to the fourth official, because you know the fourth official can talk to the referee, he said to the fourth official, tell the referee that uh, Ray Wilkins says he's having a good game. So uh, the fourth official pressed the button and said to the referee, Ray Wilkins says you're a wanker. (laughs) 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 So so everybody laughed. Ray Ray Wilkins, uh, he wet himself with laughter. It was so, so, that that was the kind of humour, you know, that went on. But the the Andrew Johnson thing, coming back to that, yeah, I couldn't see the fourth official's flag, and the ball was in the net, and then suddenly I thought, hang on a second, He's given a goal kick. So uh, having announced the goal, I, uh, the only thing I could do is say, I'm sorry, wishful thinking, yeah. No, no, it was brilliant. Your reaction was quality. But that was the, that was the kind of humour that you could have in those days. And I mean, I, rem- I remember in the very, very early days, this doesn't happen now because, of course, people have mobile phones and so on. But I remember, you know, the early days, of, maybe, maybe not in my time, but uh, maybe, you know, announcers before, they're always announcing somebody going into labour, you know. Uh, this is a message for uh, Danny yeah. Boy. Danny Boy, um, can you please go home uh, immediately? Your wife has gone into labour. The whole place would erupt, you know. It was, uh, yeah. it was kind of... Uh, you, the other thing that was very funny, and this was in my time, is that very often I would do marriage proposals for people. So I'd get a message and I'd say, this is for, let's say, Grace, who's in the Hammersmith End, and it's from Danny... And uh, the message is, Danny says, will you marry me? Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so then later on, uh, I'd get a message through, oh, Grace says, uh, Grace has said, yes, yes. And the whole crowd sang, you don't know what, what you're doing. doing. <laughs> I remember, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. But I'll tell you what, though, Danny, it's 
very nice, you know, what you said about my time there. It's very nice that uh, I haven't been forgotten. And, you know, I had a wonderful day at Wembley because I met so many people who wanted to have selfies taken. And I met uh, Fulham supporters everywhere. And it was just so great that they all remembered me and they all wanted to have pictures taken with me. And it was, for me, a very, very happy day. I would imagine that it's the kind of job that you could easily be forgotten because you are only the matchday compare, but you wasn't just a matchday compare. You was iconic. You was part of the matchday experience for so many. And no, you, you had a major impact on people growing up sporting for them. So you'll never be forgotten. I tried to make the most of the job and uh, I tried to get all the humour I could out of it. And then by the time I'd finished, I don't think there was any more humour to be injected into it, really. I think those days had gone, and it all became very serious and, and scripted. And there were things on the script. I said this to Ivan when he took over. He said, what, what, what little tips can you give me? So I said, well, at halftime, if we're losing, don't give the score. Everybody knows it. They don't want to hear it. If we're winning, you know, crow about it and say half-time is Fulham 1, Man City nil. You know, but if we're losing, uh, don't give it. E- equally, don't give it at the end if we've lost. You know, people know. They don't, they don't need to uh, be told that. And the other thing is that always on the script is that there'll be something at the end trying to sell people something, like tickets and on sale for the... Well, if you've got a crowd that's drifting out of the ground, they're all pissed off. They hardly want somebody to be selling them stuff. So you, you just have to let that go. And I, a couple of times I had people say to me, oh, you didn't plug so-and-so. And I said, if you think I'm going to plug so-and-so, when people are leaving the ground, they're pissed off because their team has lost, somebody else to do it because I'm not going to do that. You know, nobody wants to hear it. And uh, it's not the right thing to do. Always at times pressure to do things like that because obviously there are people there who, you know, it's their job to sell things. I understand that, but but you're wasting it on a crowd who who are not going to be receptive to it. And there are always people trying to get me to make it more tribal. And I said, Fulham isn't that kind of place. You know, I I understand that we want to win, and I know we understand that we want to whip the crowd up, but it doesn't have to be tribal. And also, I didn't think you had to put down the other team. I mean, in in the early days, I used to say, and a very warm welcome to the supporters of Reading. They asked me not to do that anymore. No, don't welcome them. You know, we don't want to welcome them. So, in the end, I didn't. But uh, it was much more courteous in the early days, and then it became more tribal. Fulham supporters are very different from most football supporters. They're, generally speaking, probably better behaved. Every year we won the league for best-behaved supporters. It was just something about it, and I think the place uh, encourages that. I'm very proud to take new people along to Creighton Cottage who haven't been there before because it's such a unique ground and what else has got the cottage the Johnny Haynes stand the river the park and, and there aren't many of those old fashioned grounds left no there aren't and going back to what you said about being classy and being respectful with the opposition I remember when we battered Norwich 6-0 last game of the season and it was a game that relegated them they had to win to stay up and at the end of the game, instead of just milking what was at the time, you know, our, our highest win in the top division, uh, in the Premier League, you actually said a word for Norwich, sorry to, that you've been relegated and good luck next season. And the Norwich fan clapped us. You didn't need to do that, but once you did it, it felt like the right thing to do and I wouldn't have thought to do it. So again, that comes back to you being the perfect guy at the job because I think you are a representative of the fans 
and you did it perfect. You are exactly what we needed. Absolutely. Just to conclude that thing about Norwich, what I think I said to them was, we'll look forward to seeing you back in the Premier League at some time in the future, which of course did happen. And um, I just felt that I tried to put myself in their situation. They must have felt awful. They had quite a long journey back home. And I just thought that was a foolish thing to say, really. Yeah, I agree. It was a really nice thing to say, David. Right, going back to your favourite things, um, who's been your favourite ever player? Well, I think my favourite player was Liz Barrett because I played for the Showbiz 11. I played uh, on the wing in charity matches for the Showbiz 11 and I used to watch Liz on a Saturday and think that's how to do it. Get down the line as fast as you can, get the crosses over. It didn't work out quite that way when it actually came to it, but he was my inspiration. And what about your favourite goal? My favourite goal? Uh, that's a very difficult one. I remember Alan Mullery scoring a wonderful goal. I think it was against Leicester. And it just was an absolute rocket shot from probably 25 yards out. And another one of my favourite players, just to say very quickly, was Steve Malbrock. And I know you're going to go, Steve! Steve! I thought he was just such a cultured... And I said to him at one of our end-of-season dinners, I said, you know, Steve, you are such a cultured player, such a beautiful player to watch. And, um, you know, I think he was quite pleased with that, but I, I thought he was great. I mean, there's so many great players. Johnny Haynes, George Cohen always says about Johnny Haynes, he said, uh, what do you have this great vision? And so Johnny Haynes could pick a player out with a pass uh, without even looking up. He just knew where, the, where players were. So uh, he was extremely uh, talented player. And what's been your favourite season and team? What was my favourite season? Uh, I think maybe the Tigganar season, when I think we had, if I remember rightly, 100 points and 100 goals, and we just played sublime football. Right. That moves me on to the Europa League final. Black Eyed Peas, the I've Got a Feeling song. What on earth were they doing playing that? remember me being stuck on the... Um, yeah, you got stuck on the lift, yeah. <laughs> on the cherry picker. <laughs> I, I don't like heights, and there was a huge opening at the side of it, and I thought, Christ, I'm gonna, if I fall off this, I'm, I'm going to wind up in every newspaper tomorrow, but not for the reasons I, I want. Anyway, uh, I was doing some of the announcing for us, and then they had the uh, German announcer there as well, and... Um, no, it wasn't German, was it? It was uh, Spanish. Yeah, Spanish. Yeah, there, there, there was a German announcer as well, actually. Uh, and then there was the Spanish guy for the other team, Atletico Madrid, and me for us. So we all got together beforehand, and we went down and had a rehearsal. And they had a terrific song. And then on came this thing by the Black Eyed Peas. So I said, what's this? I said, this isn't right at all. I, I don't know where this has come from, but this isn't right at all. So I went to the um, organiser and I said, look, I think we should change our song. What our song is, is Can't Take My Eyes Off You and we, we should play that. Or, that's, that's what we should have played. Yeah, we should have played that. Yes. So uh, I said, and all, everybody will sing along with it and it'll be great. So oh, he said, well, we can't do anything without talking to your PR people. So I said, oh, well, okay, well, see if you can find them and have a word, you know. I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but can I just say, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Fulham fans to see their club in the European final. 
it was a disgrace to play that song. Because the Spanish fans knew their song as if it had been rehearsed a hundred times. They all knew every single word. It was very powerful how loud they were. And then all of a sudden it was our turn. It's like, right, come on, let's give it back to them. And I would imagine after the fans didn't even know the words, it was ridiculous. Well, let me tell you what happened, Danny. I, they got hold of the PR people, and the word came back, under no circumstances must this be changed. My request to have our song was overruled by the PR department, who insisted that should be played. And I just thought to myself, I hope nobody thinks this is my idea. Uh, you looked uncomfortable introducing it. Well, I just didn't know. I just, I thought, is this something I'm missing? Is this something I don't know? And there's some... You tell me, was there any significance for that music? Apparently, it was a song that they played... I can't remember what match it was, but in the Europa League, there was a, a match where we had to win. It might have been Basel. And then they played it in the next match, and we won. And then all of a sudden, it just became a, a tradition where it was like um, a superstition. I had to play it before kickoff, but... No, as long as they played it in the changing room, I don't know why the, the whole stadium had to hear it. And it was no. bizarre, very bizarre. But yeah, I've, I've always wanted to know your thoughts on it, so it's reassuring to know that, that you didn't agree with it as well. I did have PR department people trying to overrule things that I might do or might want to do or stuff like that. That, that was not just that occasion, but... It was an ongoing thing as well, and unfortunately, uh, you get a battle of wills, and you get two people with different opinions about how things should be done, but at the end of the day, the people in the club have the last say, and uh, as a freelance employee, sadly, you don't. You know, uh, A lot yeah. of times, I just took things into my own hands and didn't ask. There was one occasion when we had the... The guy who was playing the dame and the pantomime at Hammersmith, and he was in his uh, outfit, you know, in his drag, and he wanted to come on at half time. And I think we were losing 3 0 to Man City, and he'd um, been about as welcome as a bacon sandwich at a bar mitzvah if, he, if he'd gone on then. <laughs> he, he, he couldn't wait to get on, couldn't wait to get on. And in the end, I said, said to him, look, look, leave it, just leave it for a bit, leave it. He said, I want to get on, they want, I want to get out there. I said, you'll get out there, but leave it, leave it five minutes. Let the crowd assimilate the fact that what's happened in the first half, and then we'll get you out. Then he got out, and he just about survived. But if he'd had his way, and they'd had their way, and there were people who said, oh, get him on, get him on. I said, no, just leave it. Just give it a bit of time. That that would have been like taking the piss out of the fans. 3-0 down, then you bring on a pantomime. Biggest belief sometimes. Imagine you're 3-0 down, and you go out, and, and you say, it's pantomime time. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Only at Fulham. Well, uh, I mean, although you loved your job, and you was there for a long time doing it, so I'm sure you got used to it, did it ever annoy you at times, that, particularly like the Hamburg final whistle and stuff like that, that you wasn't in the stands mixing with, with the fans and... Yeah, you, you couldn't have had a very good view of the games. Did you feel like, as a fan, you missed out a little bit during those years? Um, there were an awful lot of games that I didn't, I couldn't really just enjoy the football because all the time I was watching, you know, are subs coming on, are they going off? The most difficult thing was sometimes seeing who scored the goal, particularly when you had a, a goal-mouth melee. And apart from the Andy Johnson thing, I don't think I got any wrongs. You know, it was quite... Uh, raining quite tiring you know by the end of the day so now when i sit in the stand i can actually watch the games and relax 
and enjoy it. And see, so, so, yeah, I did. Uh, I did love most of it. I mean, I didn't like it when there were differences of opinions and arguments about how things should be done. Uh, but I just put that on the chin, you know. I, I, but I, I love, I love being part of it, and it was a very successful era. But uh, as I said to you before, when I had that fire but I thought it was the end of an era, and perhaps that was the time when uh, when I should go as well. And uh, so I did. And now I do enjoy watching the matches. I very much enjoyed watching the playoff game and wonderful view. I mean, at Wembley, everybody has a wonderful view. But uh, yeah, it's it, I can just relax and enjoy it now. And I do see a lot more when when you're down near the dugout. You don't really see all the moves working out. And uh, always there were coaches and people in front of you. So it was quite frustrating. So I, I am able to enjoy the, the football now. But I've got very, very happy memories of the time that I did it. And uh, great to be part of what was a fantastic Fulham era. Absolutely. All right, so what are you up to now? Well, I was, I was on the radio yesterday. Uh, I was doing a show for BBC Sussex and BBC Surrey. Funnily enough, somebody asked me to play Viva Old Fulham, and uh, they didn't have it there. But uh, going down to Southampton tomorrow uh, to do a programme for BBC Radio Solent. So I'm doing quite a lot of radio stuff at the moment. And um, last couple of years, I've done a rock and roll tour, a theatre tour, with a band and singers. We did 45 theatres, so that was good fun. Epsom Playhouse was the nearest one we did to the home, but uh, we were all over the place, all over the country. So it was very nice. So I like working to live audiences. So I, I did that really soon after I'd given up the job at Fulham's. I was able to do that. You know, some of them were Saturdays. There were quite a lot of things I couldn't do while I was at Fulham. So I, I took the opportunity to, to do some other things that, that I could do now. Well, it's good to hear that you're keeping yourself busy. And, you know, I wish you the best of luck with it all, David. Um, just one more question for you now. It's the famous focus question. Pie or pasty? Yeah, I want you to know that I'm not the man who ate all the pies. <laughs> I, <laughs> I only want you to eat one. <laughs> are, you, are you going to send me one? Um, uh, no, you don't want to eat one of my pies. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so what, what, what do you prefer, pie? Uh, it depends what the pie is, really. That's your call, mate. You can have whatever pie you want. You're Diddy David Hamilton. You can do whatever you like. Uh, I better. I think I better have a pasty, probably, because otherwise you, I might get a reputation as the man who ate the pies. So I better yeah. have a pasty. Typical Fulham fan playing it safe. <laughs> uh, well, Danny, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't know who is going to listen to all this for this long. Well, I mean, it's been a, an honour to speak to you. Like I said at the beginning, you know, growing up as a kid, uh, my uh, match day experience was all about you on the mic, and you know, I'll, I'll never forget your voice. Thank you for everything you've done for Fulham. Best of health to you, and I, I hope to see you down at the cottage many times. All right, bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Diddy David Hamilton there talking about his time supporting and working for Fulham. I'd like to thank David for taking the time to speak to me and I wish him all the best with his future. There's loads more Q&As to come over the next few months, and the best way to keep up to date with that, by following us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can also subscribe via iTunes or any other podcast app. But until the next one, my name's Danny Boyer, really hope you enjoyed this one, and thank you very much for listening.